You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I want to kind of carry on and piggyback off of what I talked about a little bit last week. The conversation that we're engaged in as a family within our context, within our situation and our circumstance, but just not just that, but just within this world in which we live. But there's a battle for hearts. And church, I don't know, I don't think we can understate that. I don't think we can underestimate that. I don't think we can afford to forget that all of the physical trial and suffering and all of the joy and all of the success is great and it, it, it has its own place perhaps and, and, and it has its way of forming us. But, but it is all about one, I think, primary thing that we need to remember is that there's a battle for the heart. There's a battle for the soul. And, and it's a battle that is so subtle at times. It's not always in our faces, but there's a battle for hearts. There's a battle for yours. There's a battle for mine. For those who have given their lives to Jesus, Christ has won the war. We have the victory. But yet sometimes we fail to live into that victory because maybe we fail to remember that there's a battle for hearts. There's a battle for minds and there's a battle for lives. I want you to hear the word of God. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. God wants us to understand that we're in this battle. He wants us to understand that there's a subtlety to this battle, that the devil is prowling around searching for whom he can completely engulf, completely devour. In Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain goes to kill Abel, just before Cain comes to this place where he is about to murder his own brother because of his jealousy, because of his envy, because of his rage, I want you to hear what the, war, what the Lord told him. The Lord told Cain, he said, If you do right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not, right, if you do, not do right, sin is crouching. At the door. It's desirous for you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching out the door. There's a subtle deception that is often just around the corner that we often lose awareness of. Cain knew existed because God told him, and yet God told him that he could master it but he didn't. Sin is crouching at the door. There's a battle for hearts and minds and lives. Don't miss that. I don't need to miss that. The writer of Hebrews wanted to remind the Christians there. He says, watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. See, there's a battle for hearts. And one of the ways we engage in the battle is through encouragement. By encouraging one another of who God is in our lives and who they are in God. But there's a reality to sin. There's a reality to this battle that we cannot afford to miss. That this sin that is crouching at the door, this devil that is roaring 
like a lion seeking and prowling ever so cunningly and so subtly around the world and around our lives and around our coworkers and around our friends. And, 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 as, and as religious as this all may sound, this is still the truth of God's word. This is still a reality that we cannot just casually dismiss. That there's this power that sin has, that when sin is embraced and sin is welcomed, when sin is crouching out the door and we walk right by and we just invite that into our lives, that it becomes this sort of thing that can sear our very conscience, that our hearts can grow deceived by sin's deceitfulness. If you've ever met that person who is an habitual liar, and no matter how much proof you show them that they are wrong or they are lying or that they are deceived, they will not see it because their hearts have grown deceived by sin's deceitfulness. Psychology can call it what they want to call it. I'm sure there's a lot of things to play into that. But from a biblical worldview, there's a truth and there's a reality. There is a battle for hearts, and there is a battle for minds, and there is a battle for lives. And it is real, and it is strong. But Christ is stronger. God is bigger. God is mightier. And God is a warrior, and he is fighting for hearts. But he calls his people to remember that there is a battle for hearts and minds. Even James said, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God, so whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy? Or do you think it's without the reason that Scripture says that the Holy Spirit he has caused to live in us, look at this, yearns jealously. The God's Spirit who lives in God's people is yearning, that's strong language, jealously, that is strong language for your attention, that God is stirring and prodding and moving and fighting for us to pull away from the things that pull us away from him. So God is fighting for his people, but he's also called us to fight for people too, to join in the battle and fight for the hearts and minds and souls of people because God himself is leading the way, and God really is doing the work. But maybe he needs us to remind one another of these things from time to time. Because James continues to say, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's a battle for hearts, minds, and lives. Paul to the Galatian church in chapter 5 said, I say then, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you do not do what you want to do. There is a battle for hearts. There is a battle for minds. When depression works its way in, when anxieties work its way in, when stressors begin to pull, when people lose their jobs, when these things happen, the battle begins to rage in a different way. But the battle has always been there, but the battle begins to rage in a different way. And we as Christ followers have to understand that there is a battle for hearts, minds, and lives. There's a battle for my heart, your heart, your children's heart, for Garrett's heart, for Dave's heart, for our hearts and minds and lives. Now Christ has won the battle, and that's the beauty of, of who he is, is he has won the war. But what oftentimes happens is Christians fail to remember that we live in a place that is full of war and strife because we live in a beautiful place in Williamsburg and we see the green and we see the sun and we see the blue and we step out and we breathe in the air and it just feels good and we go home and everything's right and everything's fine maybe, but we forget sometimes that there's a battle for hearts 
And we cannot forget that there is a battle for hearts. But we also cannot forget, as we remember, that Christ has won the war. But we can't sit back and say, well, Christ has won the war. Praise Jesus. I'm just going to sit back and just let, you know, let it go. Paul still said, encourage one another while it's called today. He wrote this. Peter wrote this. Peter wrote his little text and said, hey, hey, don't forget that, that as you're in the midst of these things, that, that the devil's roaming around like a roaring lion. He's prowling. God said to Cain, hey, don't forget, sin is crouching at the door. We don't need to live as paranoid people. We know who wins. We can live as confident people, but we got to live as confident people who understand what's really happening in this world. If we forget this, then we will lose the mission. And in a very real sense, we'll lose our purpose. Because the church is the body of Christ, it's the hands and feet of Christ. We're supposed to show people what love looks like, what hope looks like, not what strife looks like, what love looks like, what goodness looks like, what righteousness looks like, what fighting the right battles look like. We're supposed to show the world, and sometimes we have to remind one another that the Lord is fighting. He is rescuing because he is triumphing. He is triumphant. In Christ. So Paul, Paul in prison in this place in Ephesus. Some say he's in prison in Rome, some say he's in prison in Caesarea, some say he's in prison in Ephesus, but one thing that all scholars agree is at least he's in prison. And he's writing this letter to the Ephesian church. And so he begins penning this letter, and he sees this Roman soldier. And he's coming to the end of his letter, and he's, 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 he's continued to tell the Ephesian church what, what they needed to know, and, and he's been telling him, and, and you know that when you read Paul, that he's many times in Scripture, he's asked in other places in Scripture for people to put on Christ. He, he's, he said that you need to put on this new man. Matter of fact, Paul commanded in Galatians 3, 26, 27, he said, for all who are sons of faith in Christ Jesus, all who have been baptized into Christ, have clothed themselves with Christ. And so Paul is writing to Christians who have been baptized into Christ and are clothed with Christ, and throughout all of his letters in his ministry, he he has written things like, put on the new man, put on Christ. He's saying, put on these new clothes that you've been given. And Paul has written this Ephesian letter. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at Ephesians with me. Grab your Bibles, if you will, because I want to I wanna do something. I want you to see something about Ephesians. So maybe we can understand a little bit about where Paul is tracking as he comes to this Ephesians 6. If you'll go back, Bert, and he, and he, and he looks at this Roman soldier. Bert, if you'll go back to that soldier and, and just go ahead and leave that up there. Ephesians 1. Paul starts off, and what does he call him in verse 1? What does he call him? I'm sorry? This is, this is a participatory part. Okay, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, of God's will to the who? To the saints. He doesn't say to the sinners, does he? He says to the saints. He reminds them of their identity right out of the gate. I mean, they're just broken, messed up people, but yet they're called saints. And so he says to the saints and believers, so right out of the gate in this letter, the first time the man stands up in the assembly of God's people and says, hey guys, we got a letter from Paul. He got a letter from Paul. And he writes out and says, to the saints, to those who have been set apart by the love and the grace of God, for those who are seen by God as holy and beautiful and right. 
But Paul continues. Look at the first chapter. The whole first chapter, Paul is reminding God's people of what God has done in Jesus Christ and the blessings that are made available to them. You see that? And then you go to chapter 2. Paul goes back and he says, okay, but this is who you were without Christ. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But then immediately in that same section of that letter, he comes back and says, but by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you're created for good things. So the first two chapters, Paul says, this is what God has done for you in Christ. This is what you have in Christ. This is who God is in Christ. This is Jesus. This is what's happened to you. Isn't it beautiful? This is who you are. He reaffirms their identity in the first two chapters of this letter. And then he gets to the third one, and he starts talking about ministry, and he starts talking about what he's tried to let them know. And then he starts talking about the spiritual power in chapter 3 that is made available to them through the Holy Spirit of God who lives in them. And he says that this power is beyond imagination. It's beyond anything you could ever fathom. And Paul says, and it lives right inside of you. And then he goes back now and he's finally turning a corner in his letter and he gets to chapter 4 and he starts talking about, okay, now you're a church. You're a group of people and so there needs to be unity in you because of everything I've already said, there's unity in you and there's one body and there's one peace and there's one hope of one calling, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father all over all, there's, there's just one spirit and, and you guys are all together and you're in this together and then Paul begins to talk about being in this together in chapter 4 and he says, and so I gave some of you apostles and preachers and pastors and teachers so that if you guys get together and you let people serve how they're gifted, then they'll grow you, you'll grow one another. And then together you will grow into this complete manifestation of the love and the grace of God in this world. That's chapter 4. And then he gets into chapter 5 and he says, now, since you have all this, since you know who you are in Christ, since you know what God has done for you in Christ, since you know what is expected of you in Christ because of what Christ has done, this is now, this is how you live in response to it. So it takes Paul essentially four chapters to get to a command, Paul soaks them in the gospel for four chapters of this letter before he utters one, you should do this. Parents, think about that with your children just for a minute. Church, let's think about that. He reminds them of who they are in Christ over and over and over and over again. It's the gospel, church. He just is pouring out the gospel. He's soaking them in the gospel. And then he gets to chapter 5 and turns the corner. It says that this is what your life should look like in result of what God has done for you in Christ. And he lays out just these commands, man. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Love one another. Value one another higher than you value yourself. Live in this new way of life. Wives, love your husbands. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Then he gets to chapter 6, a parent's favorite text. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. And then he gets to the people who are slaves, and he says, slaves, look, look, slaves, check this out, church. Slaves, obey your, obey your human masters. And see, Paul could say this because for the first four chapters, he's reminded a slave who they really are. You following that? Slaves, obey your masters. Paul starts talking about this great surrender. And then he's closing out this letter. And he looks at that Roman soldier. And maybe Paul thinks, you know, I've got to mention something else. I've got to remind these saints about the battle, about the war, about the very things that are going to fight against the very things I've just written them about. 
the very things that are going to battle for the hearts and the minds that I have just spent all my time soaking in the gospel. And so he looks at this soldier, and he finds his analogy. And so he says in verse 10, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Paul reminds them to be strong. That the, the, the devil is going to fire darts. And these darts are going to be subtle. And that there's a battle not against flesh and blood. The battle is not me versus you and it never will be. It's not you versus sister, you versus brother. It never will be. Why will it not be? Because of the first five chapters of the whole letter, he says. You're all saints and you're in this together. Christ has done this for you. You are already made holy. You are made right. Now learn how to be those things. And as you're learning how to be those things, don't forget for one second that there's not a battle going on. And he says, be strong. And then in verse 13, he says, this is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. And he looks at that soldier and he looks at his pen and his paper and he looks at that soldier and he finds his analogy. Paul's an intelligent man. And he says, stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. Righteousness like armor on your chest. And your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith and with it, you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Paul, in verse 14, his first word is stand. See, because standing is about posture. And a Roman soldier is not going to fight well if he doesn't know his posture. See, spiritually, stand is about intentionality. Stand is about understanding that we have to be intentional with how we live our lives. That we don't just fall into discipleship. We don't just fall into joy and peace. That we must take our stand and surrender in the grace of God. We must take our stand, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, in the gospel. We must take our stand, as Paul said in Romans 5, this grace in which we stand. We must posture our hearts and our lives in such a way that we understand what's really going on in the world. We must take a stand, and it's a stand of determination, of desire, of firmness, of resolve, of intentionality. And then Paul says, when you've taken your stand, you need to have truth like the belt. For the Roman soldier, the leather belt was the foundation of all the other gear that the soldier would wear. The belt held everything else in place. If that belt was loose, the breastplate would fall. Not only that, the belt was where the weapons would hang. Without that belt, there was no defense. There was no offense. There was no soldier. 
And Paul looks at the Christians in Ephesus in his heart, and he says, you tie around your waist the belt of truth. You, Christians, make sure that what is holding you up is God's word. That what is holds together your life is what God says is real about life. And that is found in the word. Paul is saying, if you want to hang anything, your priorities and your plans, your hopes and your dreams, you're going to hang them on some sort of belt. He says, make sure the belt you hang them upon is the belt of God's word, of truth, of what God says is real, of what God says is right and good and holy and worthy and lovely. Make sure you hang them there. See, sadly, Christians in Ephesus and even Christians today, we hang our priorities and our plans and convictions sometimes on different belts, on our own views of what's right and what's wrong, on our philosophies, perhaps even on our circumstances. And what we fail to realize is that this belt of truth, it holds everything up inside of us. It even, in a sense, it holds us together. When pain and suffering comes, the word of God, the truth of God, puts pain and suffering in a perspective. So we hang the pain and suffering on the belt of God's word, and it puts it in a, at, least, at least puts it in a perspective. When joys and successes come, we, we hang all of those joys and successes on the, on the belt of God's word, and it puts those joys and successes in perspective. Because if we don't, we'll put those joys and perspectives, our joys and successes on our own belts, and we'll start thinking we did it for ourselves. And our defenses will fall apart. Paul says, what will hold your convictions together is allowing the word of God to be the belt that holds you together. See, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he used the word of God to defend himself. We use all kinds of things to defend ourselves. What Paul is saying is, use the word of God. Let it hold you together. The breastplate of righteousness. Paul takes a look and he says, righteousness like an armor on your chest. This breastplate is a defensive piece of equipment Sometimes one complete piece, maybe sometimes two pieces, maybe made of leather, maybe made of bronze. It would depend on the ranking of the soldier. But it's obvious what this breastplate would do. It would protect the vital organs of the soldier. And if the breastplate was held on firmly by the belt and the breastplate was attached firmly to the soldier, he would become incredibly difficult to wound. And Paul says... Make sure you strap your belt tight and make sure it's strapped around this breastplate of righteousness. See, Paul in this particular text is issuing a call to action. Albeit he's talking about defensive equipment, it is a call to action. And righteousness, biblically defined, has about two broad meanings. And I think we need to know this to understand at least a little bit about what Paul is trying to say here. Righteousness in one meaning has to do with your and my condition with God. 
that we are seen as righteous by God. Here's the point. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are made righteous before holy God, not because of our works, but because of Christ and what he did on the cross. Because he became sin, we became righteous. He became what we were so that we could become what he is. And so on one level, perhaps Paul is saying, hey, as the darts are thrown at you, remember who you are. Have that breastplate of righteousness on you. As you make stupid mistakes and you come back and you repent before God, remember who you are. You are righteous before God. Christ is your righteousness. You stand right because of what Christ has done. That can protect the heart. Because that becomes an identity issue. That becomes a who am I issue. I didn't get that job that I went out to set to get. I didn't pass that exam. I didn't make it into that school. My marriage is on the rocks. My kids are going crazy. And then you have all these identity issues that creep up. And then Paul is saying, look, have that breastplate of righteousness strapped to that very heart that you need protected. Have that, remember who you are. Your life isn't defined by what you do or what you don't do. It is defined by what Christ has already done. Remember who you are. But I think Paul could mean something else too because this is a call to action. And righteousness, the second definition, has to do with right living. It has to do with doing justice. And Paul could be saying as well, because you're made righteous, learn how to live that way. Because if you're really made righteous, you're going to learn how to live that way. Do right. Because look at Ephesians 4, verse 24. Look at what it says. Because this is the same letter. He says in verse 23, You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. Verse 24, You put on the new man, the one created according to God's likeness in what? Righteousness and purity of the truth. That righteousness is also not just a condition from which we stand before God, but it also becomes the way in which we live our lives. It is rightness. It is doing right. When that brother wrongs you, you do right. When that sister wrongs you, you seek to do right. Because why? Because you've become an imitator of God. And so Paul is saying, seek to do right in your life. The breastplate of righteousness means we will not fall into the trap of believing that we are saved by what we can do. We will not fall into the trap of believing that we can live however we want to live. We cannot fall into the trap of doing what we believe to be right or just in an unjust world, but we will do what is right and just in God's rightness and justice. We will do what he would do. Be concerned with what God is concerned about. And if you struggle to put this in a practical context, think about those who have lived their lives in unrighteousness and think about what it's done to their hearts. I don't have to look very far beyond myself to remember that. When we put on the breastplate of righteousness, our hearts will be protected. Paul looks at this soldier and he sees his sandals. And he realizes that if these sandals aren't fastened well and if these sandals aren't quality sandals, that the terrain through which this Roman soldier has to move, how the soldier stands, it'll be put at risk, it'll be put at jeopardy. And so Paul says, you make sure your feet are sandaled with the gospel. The gospel of peace. 
we know what brings peace to the world, and it is Christ. It is not the sword. It is not the gun. It is not strife. Christians know that what brings peace to the world is Christ. And people who live like Christ. Having our feet sandaled with the gospel of peace is a call to action for us to not just proclaim the gospel with our lips, church, but to proclaim it with our lives. As families are falling apart in wrath and chaos, when we come out and offer a sense of stability, we are wearing and living with our gospel sandals of peace. We are bringing peace into their life. You follow that? How you love the person in chaos brings peace into their life, and it points to the peace of Christ. We are to wear the sandals of peace. We know what darkness is, and we know what light is. Paul comes around and he says, have the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Look how big that shield is. The shield of faith, big enough for the entire soldier to hide behind. The shield of faith, able to extinguish all the darts and the arrows that the enemy could ever try to shoot. Why? Because the shield of faith is stirred by the memory of who God is. The shield of faith provokes a life. It provokes a lifestyle. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. The Bible says that we understand that faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is unseen. We know who God is. We know what he said about this world. We know what he said about our lives. We know what he said this world is going to look like when Jesus returns. We know that, and God is asking us to live as though we know what's happening here. And that affects how we fight, and it affects how we stand. And that is the shield that keeps us from being killed in this battle because we also trust that Jesus is our rock and he is our shield. And finally, Paul says, the salvation for our helmet. This is the mind, church. This is remembering who you are, who I am, remembering where that comes from, what God has done on the cross, what God has done in the resurrection. It guards our minds because our minds are set on the gospel. Our minds are set on Christ. And then Paul goes into what maybe you could call the offensive weapons, and he says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, we often try to fight battles with a lot of different ways. You've probably heard it in religious circles where two people are arguing Bible, but no one's bringing the Bible out. They're just quoting a lot of Bible. That's a dangerous place to be. Or maybe when you find yourself falling into temptation or falling into hurt or falling into struggle or falling into doubt, the last thing you want to do is go to the Bible. How many of you can identify with that? Because the Bible will put that to death. The Word of God will kill, will kill the enemy. It will kill the struggle because God will speak truth into our lives. Who reminds us of our defensive armor. And then Paul finally says this, if you will. And Bert, if you'll go to the next verse, and we'll close with this. Verse 18, with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit, and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. See, prayer becomes another way 
of fighting the battle. And it's not just prayer for myself, though. It's prayer for you. It's intercessory prayer. See, because then there's an image. Bert, if you'll go to the image of the, of the group of soldiers in the defensive posture. See, because then there's the image of then me fighting for you and you fighting for them and you fighting for me and us fighting for others. And then we hunker down together with our shields of faith and we hunker down together with our breastplates of righteousness and we hunker down together with our helmets of salvation girded with our, with our sandals of the gospel of peace. We hunker down together and we cover one another because we're fighting for one another and we're protecting one another. Why? Because we're interceding for one another. This is why prayer makes bigger differences than any ministry we could actually do. This is why we need to fight for the lobster family in prayer. This is why we need to fight for G as he's out there doing physical therapy day after day after day after day after day after day after day. When you pray for him, you are taking your shield of faith and you're putting it over him too. This is why we fight for one another. We do it through the word and we do it through prayer. We send, we send encouraging reminders that are grounded in theology, not grounded in philosophy, not grounded in a refrigerator magnet or a bumper sticker that has God's name on it. We ground it in the Bible, and we encourage one another with the truth of God's word. And we pray because we are armored up. We stand as a people whose memories are stirred. We stand as a people whose eyes are wide open to what the, really, what the real battle is, and we stand as a people who are armored up with the armor of God. That is who we have to be. We cannot forget who we are, and we cannot forget the world in which we live, and we must fight and live appropriately. Let's pray.